What's up, y'all? It's your host, JP Flores, and welcome to this special sixth episode of From Where Does It Stem? On this episode, I wanted to share a clip of a discussion led by me and my good friend, Daphne Arana, who is also a senior at Occidental College in Los Angeles, California. For context, we discussed how we must acknowledge the history of racism in medicine and healthcare in order to strive for more just and equitable change. We brought up the Tuskegee syphilis study, eugenics, the Henrietta Lacks cell line, and topics of racism on plantations in the U.S. antebellum South, such as forced sterilizations and hysterectomies. We also talked about how there is a lack of funding for sickle cell disease research versus cystic fibrosis. Sickle cell disease is thought of by many to be an exclusively black disease, but that's not the case. It may occur in higher frequency in black people, but it is not a black disease. Sickle cell disease is an evolutionary adaptation to malaria exposure and occurs in higher frequency in people who live in regions where malaria is or once was common. Sickle cell trait is protective against malaria and is also found in regions such as the Mediterranean Basin, the Arabian Peninsula, and the Indian subcontinent. Without further ado, here is Dr. Callistus Ditto. As you stand, stand by me. And darling, darling, stand by me. Oh, stand by me. Oh, stand now. Stand by me. Stand by me. You know, a lot of people usually ask, like, how did this happen, right? You grew up in Cameroon, absolutely no resources. Uh, you know, my memories of growing up were like struggling to put food on the table. How did you guys all end up being physicians in America? And I, I would say, you know, there are a lot of things uh, that go into that. Uh, a big factor is, it's just number one is a mental aspect, right? When I grew up, my parents, so my dad never had a high school education, okay? Uh, my mom never went past fifth grade. She couldn't even write her name when we were growing up. It's like the things that we remember. Uh, we were not wealthy at all. Um, but my dad was smart enough uh, that he taught arithmetic at a middle school. And he sort of, he knew that education was important and he believed that education could get you out of anything. Uh, so when we were growing up, he said we were all going to go to school and we were going to keep going until we couldn't go anymore. Uh, at a time when it was a very unpopular idea, especially you know in the village where we grew up, uh, he even sent his girl children to school and people thought that was crazy. Uh, but he sort of pushed us and made us believe that we could do anything we wanted to do if we just went to school. So by the time I came along, I actually thought it was a privilege uh, to get to go to school. And I would do things so as to earn the right to go to school. Uh, if I did something wrong, my dad threatened me by saying he was going to pull me out of school if I, you know, if I kept doing that. So it became an expectation. The reason why I'm telling you guys is I kind of think expectations matter. It became an expectation. I grew up believing to study hard and you will get anywhere that you really want to go. Uh, and no one, no one can stop you. We all thought we were all very smart. And I actually thought that's how the world was. Um, uh, sorry, I think they're probably calling me an OR, but I'll do this. Uh, you know, and I, I just kind of grew up, you know, believing that you could do anything really 
and that I was smart enough to do anything that I wanted to do. Uh, but to cut things short, uh, I finished high school. As soon as I finished high school, um, a family friend actually lived in Minneapolis at the time, and he thought, you know, maybe, you know, you can apply to come to a community college uh, in Minnesota. And, you know, it's like, okay, of all places, I didn't know anything about this place. I never traveled. But he applied for me to go to a community college. And long story short, right after high school, I found myself in Minneapolis in the middle of a winter uh, as a teenager without any family around. Uh, I came in and, you know, my family had actually borrowed, they had taken a loan just to pay my flight to get to this country. And I came in with $10 in my pocket. That's all I had. Uh, when I came in, I went to the community college and they said I had to bring $2,700 to start a semester. And I was like, geez, that's, you guys have got to be kidding me. That's way too much money. Like, where am I going to get that from? They already took a loan to send me here. And with all of that, I actually, I actually quit school after high school because I couldn't afford that money. Uh, I quit school. I was illegal because I came here with an F1 visa, and then I couldn't go to school. Uh, so I had some odd jobs. I secured a job at a McDonald's. Uh, I secured a job at Walmart. I was like, you know, pushing cats outside in the middle of winter. Uh, I was unloading the truck. Uh, and I secured another one at Old Navy working as a cashier. So I had three jobs. And over two years, I raised a shit ton of money and then went back to the community college and said, now I, I'm back. I can do this. Uh, so that's how everything kind of started. And I had to pay for the first semester and the rest of history uh, after that. Uh, but I spent two years at a community college and then transferred to the University of Minnesota where I did one year, and then eventually transferring to Oxford in England, uh, where I sort of finished my undergrad. Uh, and then I came back to Michigan, in Arbor. I attended medical school at the University of Michigan uh, before finally ending up here. And, you know, I know I'm really abbreviating this a lot, but there's like, there's like a whole lot that goes in there. But I'll tell you all that a unifying factor in all of this uh, was the mental aspect of believing. Okay, I came in here as a beast. I came in here thinking that like I could do anything. And all I had to do was just study. Just give me an opportunity to study and I will be anything. Uh, and that's kind of how, you know, things have sort of, you know, gone for me. I know it's a very long answer to a simple question, but that's kind of how I got here. Thank you, Calistus. I've just been getting chills this whole time. So <laughs> this whole discussion has really uh, got me feeling this way. So, Daphna, do you want to share our questions? Yeah, well, I guess we can maybe open up this discussion to the rest of the class, too. So if you all have any questions for Callistus, for Dr. Callistus, please feel free to unmute yourselves, ask your questions. And yeah, I, I'm also so thankful to have him here today. Uh, really appreciative. Also, just an amazing opportunity to have you here, Callistus. So thank you so much. Calistus, I had a question. Did you have any language barriers and to what extent did they affect your motivation for studying grinding? Uh, I really did. So I grew up, so there's, there's actually an English part of Cameroon, which is where I grew up. When I went to school, I studied English, uh, but I do speak a dialect that I grew up with, uh, and that's my mother's tongue. 
when I initially moved here, I couldn't understand people. Like that was just, you know, the accent and everything and just using English, that really threw me off. Uh, but I figured I had to learn quick, you know. I, I, I'm here and I wasn't planning on you know, running back anytime soon. So I just kind of had to throw myself in there and see what I could pick up. And not only language, but man, I mean, culturally, I was like, you know, I'm still a little awkward, but I was like totally awkward. They said, you know, a lot of inappropriate things, things you shouldn't be saying, uh, ask questions that you shouldn't be asking. But, you know, all you can do is ask, learn, and then uh, move on. I have some pretty interesting stories about that, that, I, you know, when I get a little bit comfortable, they may come out. But I think you just have to realize uh, that, you know, I'm here, like, this is the only option I have. I don't know anything else, and I have to learn. And once you get past that mental aspect of learning, I think everything else from that standpoint kind of becomes easy. Thank you. That was great. Um, do you mind if I jump in? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, well, I just wanted to welcome you and say thank you for joining our class today. I wanted to add a little bit of context for the rest of the class about where you are right now. Um, I really enjoyed listening to the podcast that... JP and Daphna had assigned and couldn't help but notice that it was also centered around uh, the University of Wisconsin in Madison. Um, I uh, was an undergrad at the University of Wisconsin, and I also was a grad student at the University of Michigan, so I've sort of followed around in the same places that you have been. And at, when I was an undergrad at the University of Wisconsin, there was a huge controversy that came out where students at the newspaper had identified that our admissions brochure that year had been photoshopped to show white students and black students standing next to each other cheering at a football game. And they figured this out because they could see that the sun was shining on one side of the white students' faces and the sun was shining on the other side of the black students' faces. So the reason I bring this up is I wanted to provide the context for the type of institution that um, that uh, Dr. Callistus is at. Um, it is a historically very racist institution in a, in a um, state that is incredibly segregated. Um, Milwaukee is one of the most segregated cities in the United States, and that's just outside of Madison. And uh, it really brought up to me when I was listening to the podcast what it must be like to be a Black doctor or Black resident at the University of Wisconsin. I was just wondering if you could comment on that. That's, a, that's an incredibly powerful question, and I'm glad you brought it up. If I'm being honest, I would probably say, so I've lived around the world in a lot of places, Cameroon, Minneapolis, Oxford, Ann Arbor, and Madison. If I'm being frank with you guys, Madison is probably the most racist of all of them. Uh, so uh, it is, you know, things are changing like the rest of America, uh, but just, you know, they aren't perfect. And just like you said, and I'll kind of, you know, bring in a, a few instances. I think when we talk about, you know, some of these things, they usually aren't blatant, right? Uh, and there's something that I'm going to touch about a little bit here, which is this whole concept of a selective application of the law. Uh, yeah, it is the law, but when you choose to enforce the law at certain times, when you please, uh, I, in my mind, I also consider that racist. You guys may not know this, but it's illegal to hang a parking tag 
on your green you know, on your driving mirror when you're in the car. Apparently it is. I found out because I got pulled over by a police. And the reason for pulling me over was that I had that parking pass hanging on my rear driving mirror. And I'm going, well, you know, 85% of the people in the parking lot, which is, you know, we all use, have it hanging. Why did you just choose to pull me over because of that? Um, or, you know, just several other instances where I just get pulled over around the town. And then they realized I just pulled over, you know, a surgeon to be, and then things get awkward. Um, so it, it is difficult, but I think, you know, I, I'm not justifying it. I'm not justifying this, obviously. Uh, it's difficult. It's changing. It's getting better, even just over the last six years that I've been here. Uh, but that still doesn't make it right. Um, and I know when it actually comes to the institution, uh, in my department, I'll tell you guys this. So I'm graduating, you know, next year. I graduate in June. When I graduate from our program, I will be the first African-American male to ever have matched and graduated as a surgeon at this institution, as a general surgeon, which in 2021 just seems ridiculous to me. Uh, I actually came in not knowing that. Um, I discovered that while, you know, while I was here. And I'm going, this is America, it's, this is a Midwest city, you know, an hour and a half outside, you know, away from Chicago, how can this be the case? Uh, and then you dig back and you realize that, you know, I see how that has been the case and the things that you're saying are true, they're very true. Uh, it's in the hospital, right? Patients uh, demonstrate this in several instances. Uh, but I think at a faculty level, uh, it's getting a lot better. Uh, it's still bad within the city, uh, you know, things that you hear people say or things that you see people do, like the police incidents, like I just quoted to you. Um, but on some days I wake up and I say, it's what it is. This is the situation. And how can you take this and just, you know, walk with it, but continue to make progress? Thank you. And I'm so sorry to hear that that happened to you where you were uh, pulled over for something as ridiculous as a parking permit hanging from your window. I can't imagine how that, you know, those little things that happen on a daily basis to black scholars, black doctors, uh, other people of color, um, how that keeps them from being able to be in the classroom and be in the lab and doing the research and the, the work that they need to do. Yeah, I mean, thanks a lot. And I think I was just beginning to describe an incident uh, that, uh, you know, I pulled out of a uh, parking garage. I live right downtown Madison. It's about an eight minute drive from the hospital. I uh, pulled out of my garage and I, you know, we come in very early. So I saw a car come in. I thought nothing of it. And then it followed me all the way for, you know, the entire drive until I was about to pull into the garage in the hospital. And then I realized that it was a police officer who had been following me uh, the entire time. And then I'm going, is he going to pull me over or not? And then he does. Uh, and I asked him, why had you pulled me over? His excuse was, when I pulled out of the garage at home, I pulled out, quote unquote, kind of fast. Um, so I immediately had a lot of questions. I was like, what does kind of fast mean? What was that? What was the speed of kind of fast? And the next thing is, if I did something wrong, why didn't you pull me over by my house downtown where you saw me? Why would you drive 
behind me the entire time and then pull me over in the hospital. Wouldn't you want to pull out the dangerous driver before they commit another offense? Uh, but all of what I'm telling you guys this to say is you have to be perfect to kind of live the life that I live. You have to be perfect. Uh, can you imagine following me for that long and me not making a mistake of like, you know, rolling through a stop sign, uh, you know, doing something ridiculous. And then not only did he pull me over, he went ahead and, you know, he ran my license, of course, and then sort of searched in the car. Um, I'm the most benign person, didn't find anything in the car. I, I have nothing in there. And then he realized there was really nothing here to go after. But he obstructed my morning by about half an hour, um, you know, caused unbearable distress and all these things for pulling out of my garage kind of fast. So I think, you know, what I tell people that look like me around here or a lot of the black, you know, people that I encounter is, uh, you know, try to be perfect because uh, that's what it's going to take uh, for you to like not end up in jail, right? Or to like not end up in the wrong you know, in the wrong hands, because your mistakes are more likely to get punished. A lot of people can make mistakes. Times, they, you know, they talk about laws that you didn't even know were laws. Uh, people, you know, do things to you that you start wondering, geez, everyone is doing this. You know, I'm not justifying that you should commit a crime because everyone is committing a crime. But I'm just saying that if they make it that incredibly difficult for you to function, uh, you know, what's that? But that's there. You should know that, though. Just know that it's there and not just kind of let, you, you know, let it drag you down too much. That is especially ridiculous, uh, given the context of being in Madison at the University of Wisconsin. I'm sure the Oxy students don't uh, recognize this as much because you are all perfect angels. Uh, but Wisconsin is known uh, notorious as a huge party school. So you could literally walk down the street and find plenty of people to uh, pull over or arrest for doing illegal things like underage drinking at any time of the day, likely. Um, and so the fact that you are being followed for something like this and impacting your work, uh, your residency at the University of Wisconsin uh, is just ridiculous. Yeah, um, you know, uh, yeah, you know, thanks. And I'm hoping to answer a lot of your questions and not just take time you know, going into these stories that you guys already know exist, right? Like, I, I, like, I don't think I'm telling you guys anything that you don't really know uh, happens on a day-to-day -day basis. I think the big thing to also take is, you know, like, I'm not an exception, right? And I, and I looked, at, looked at some of the questions that you guys, you know, kind of submitted. It's, it's when I'm out in the community, I'm just another black man who is dangerous, and needs to be either suppressed. Uh, I don't walk around with a badge or name tag or anything that says, you know, this is a young surgeon. Please, you know, treat him well. No, I'm just another person. Uh, and what I try to say is, you know, I have a voice and I tell my colleagues uh, who look like me that we have an incredible voice to use. And one of the things that often happen is uh, people get too tentative. And they say, what are the repercussions of going on air or standing out and saying some of these things? Um, do they have an impact on a career? Probably. Do I really care? No, I don't give a shit. Uh, I could quit being a surgeon tomorrow. But if, that's, if I quit because I you know, stood up for justice, I complained about these things, 
I'm okay doing that. Like that's very okay. I've just gotten to that point. And I try to encourage my colleagues that we can't keep saying, you know, you don't want to be labeled the troublemaker uh, because I think that's really hurting the rest of the people who really haven't made it, right? I'm fine. I'm going to be fine. I'm going to make a shit ton of money, right? I'm going I'm I'm to be successful. And I can say, you know what? That's not my problem. But no, this is our problem. And we have to tackle it like that. So not only do we need, uh, you know, the white voices that are also around that have stepped up, you know, solving this problem, we need to get in the forefront and do it like even more because, I mean, we have a lot of at stake. My daughter, you know, like this impact, this is going to impact my daughter. I don't have any children, but my future daughter, my future son, like this is going to impact them, right? And these are the things that I think we should be doing and not be so tentative or afraid of being, of being labeled. Um, Daphne, do you want to introduce those questions? Yeah, so as we're coming to, I think, the last five minutes of class, we did also want to discuss two final questions and leave this discussion off on a more positive note. And Callistus, we'd also love your, your input here as well, if you'd like. But we, were, we wanted just to conclude our presentation really with um, having a brief discussion on like, where do we go from here? Having this knowledge on how racism is so um, deeply rooted in the medical field and in healthcare, how can the medical field and the healthcare industry reconcile with their racist past and what steps should be taken? And I think maybe from like a resident's point of view, a physician's point of view, yeah, that could be really insightful. Yeah, I'll say something about that uh, right off the bat. So my in my experience, uh, I don't think a lot has changed in terms of what we do about racism. We've gotten a lot smarter about how we're talking about it uh, is what has really changed. Uh, people have gotten smarter about sending emails and like, you know, all this like consolation. It's like a consolation really. But I think we've done enough talking. We need to start acting is where I think this thing needs to go forward. Uh, we need to come up with objects, you know, objective parameters. We need to say, here is what we want to do. Here is how we're gonna measure it. And here's how we're gonna define success and then go achieve that. Uh, I'll, like the next conversation I wanna have, you know, say with an administrator or someone who wants to deal with this is, I want to have the conversation of, this is where we want to go. How do we get there? That's the conversation that I think this needs to go to because we, we've all acknowledged that there's an issue here. You know, when I go into a patient's room and the patient just immediately thinks I'm there for the trash or that I'm there to transport them, you know, to radiology for the x-ray, I'm just like, well, no, let's talk about where we're going to cut you because this is kind of a big deal. Uh, you know, that, sh that shock, of seeing that, like, I think we need to, you know, be that profound, right? We need to come up with real objective parameters of how we do these things. Uh, and people are coming up with policies and saying that, you know, this, this, this. I think we have enough policies. Policy is not going to do it. It's not, some policy is not going to change the real objective ways of how we approach this. And then I, I think, you know, one other thing that would probably go with that is, so we need a lot of mentors, and this is something that I mentioned in the podcast. Uh, like, 
I, I, like not just mentors, but like, I don't like being a surgeon alone. When I look around every morning, you know, I look around in the operating room and everyone I see uh, is, you know, it's like white, like that doesn't really comfort me, uh, right? Like, I don't feel comfortable with, with that. Like, so we, we need more people that look like us in the field. We need to establish, you know, these pipelines because when I have an issue, the first person I want to talk to is someone that I think reasons with me, looks like me, understands where I'm coming from. Uh, as a surgeon, you know, you're going to have complications. That's a fact. And if you're not okay with that, then you probably shouldn't be in this field. Um, but there's also this, you know, conception in medicine. Um, when I have a complication, when I do something, when I operate on a patient, and if the patient dies, there's this, you know, sort of narrative uh, that goes around. The patient died because, you know, they say, oh, well, what were you thinking that the black guy could open your heart to begin with? You know, like, did you really think this was going to go well? But when a white guy does it, you know, he tried his best and, you know, and God just, you know, this was his time. But when I have the same complication, it's that guy was terrible. Like, you shouldn't have done this. So there is that. And I think if you have colleagues that kind of, you know, stand for you and like when they hear that kind of chatter going around, they say, hey, no, look, you know, this is this is what happened here. Uh, or, or, or if the patient comes in and they see that, you know, there are a bunch of surgeons that are black, you know, and then they can't just go around and say, well, that's because that was like the one black guy that's here. And of course, you're like, operator. what do you think? So we need presence. We need to establish, you know, those uh, connections, create the pipelines, not just for people coming in fields like this, but also you know, there's STEM fields that are out there and we're like completely underrepresented in. Uh, and again, this doesn't happen overnight. Start with the middle school, start in the communities, educate parents, educate the children, uh, uh, you know, and bring them all along so that we can, you know, solve this problem and we're not talking about the same thing, you know, 10, 15 years from now. Thank you so much for that, Kostas. That was really inspiring, especially because as Occidental biology students, we are striving for that same goal, right? We're trying to diversify and implement full inclusion in our biology departments. And I, I completely agree with the fact that we do need to go out into communities. We need to educate parents and students and go to middle schools, right? I'm really sad that I have to stop this discussion, but it is 1130 and the conclusion of our class. But I do want to say words can't explain how grateful I am that you were able to take the time to come out and speak to our um, special topics in biology class. We'll definitely stay in touch. I will text you um, about a little more. Hopefully I can get you on my podcast as well. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we'll see. Um, yeah. yeah, thank you very much for having me, guys. Hey, uh, JP, feel free to share my email and contact info if anyone has any questions, if I can be a resource, if I can help you at any point. I may not get to back to you on time, but I always will. Uh, just because of the nature of my schedule. Uh, but feel free to reach out if you have any, any, any questions. Will do. Thank you so much, Clistis. We really, really appreciate it. Thank, Thank you so much. Thank you. Yes. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you.
After that class discussion, it has become more eminent that scientists and doctors alike should not and will not stop until we can level the playing field. We will not stop until we can foster just and equitable learning environments for everyone. Up next, we have Justin Stewart. They are a queer autistic microbiologist at the Vrije Universiteit, which is across the pond in Amsterdam. Stay tuned. <laughs>